Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Laura Kerr, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Mental Health and Trauma, and I'm recording today from the lands of the Bunurong people of the southeastern Kulin Nation. I'm privileged to be speaking with Kizzy Searle today, who is one of the members of our Mental Health and Trauma Advisory Group. She has lived experience of complex trauma and mental distress and is a firm believer that mental health and trauma-informed practices are for all speech pathologists. Kizzy has been practising as a speech pathologist since 2015 and has worked in disability, small Aboriginal charities and clinical education. She is currently working for UMBO, servicing people in rural and remote Australia via telepractice. Kizzy is also a consumer advisor for Sydney Local Health District Mental Health Services. Pursuing her passion outside of work hours, Kizzy is developing a mental health and trauma website for speech pathology and advocating for trauma-informed practice on Instagram. We'll ask Kizzy a bit more about this at the end. Welcome, Kizzy. Thanks, Laura. It's so nice to be here with you uh, from Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Okay, let's get into it. So during our last uh, Mental Health and Trauma Advisory Group meeting, I encouraged members to put up their hand for a podcast episode and you enthusiastically accepted the invitation. Tell us why. I guess the main reason is because I'm really passionate about the area. Uh, I feel it's also quite a misunderstood area and I really want to be able to share what I think, you know, being a mental health and trauma-informed speech therapist or work, working in that way actually means. Um, having had lived experience of mental health and trauma, I think it's also given me more insight into how significant it can be in terms of its impacts on communication and what it's like to, I guess, uh, be on the receiving end of therapy as well. And then working in the space as a speech therapist, uh, working with clients who have a history of mental health and trauma means that I've also been able to uh, get a better understanding of how relevant what we work on is for actually all clients, um, regardless of their needs. Uh, it's not really a, a niche, which is how it can often seem for a lot of people, because understandably, you know, we don't really learn, or at least I didn't really learn a lot about it um, back when I was studying at uni. Uh, and yeah, uh, yeah, I would say those are the probably the main reasons why. Terrific. It's really valuable having someone who's prepared to talk about their lived experience, Kizzy, because I think it really brings a, a sort of personal aspect, you know, like we, we can often talk really clinically about clients, but when we hear stories um, from those that we work with or, you know, the colleagues or, or clients, it can really sort of drive the point home to us that we're working with people, aren't we? Um, other human beings as opposed to... Mm. That, that idea of, of just a client yeah yeah so you obviously bring a lot of knowledge um, and experience uh, to your work and to us today to whatever extent you feel comfortable please can you tell us about your lived experience you know I was only able to feel safe enough to share my lived experience because 
you've helped me to feel safe um, because that is, you know, that is at the core of, I think, all human interactions. We need to first feel safe and we need to then feel connected in order to grow, to learn, to be authentic. And um, I think that's at the core of speech therapy work as well. Um, so thank you. <laughs> uh, but in terms, of, <laughs> in terms of your question, um, yeah, I, I've gotten very comfortable with sharing my lived experiences because over the past few years, I've realised how valuable it can be uh, to have that insight I, um, I'm also a consumer advisor for the Sydney Local Health District mental health sector, where I, I sit on a few committees and panels where I basically use my lived experience to uh, guide research, policy, procedures. You know, I look through the documents for the hospitals and all sorts of things. And it's really helped me to realise that the lived experience is valuable. It's, it's knowledge. Um, so anyway, so in terms of my actual lived experience, uh, I have lived experience of complex trauma, which if I summarise briefly is basically uh, really traumatic experiences you might have in early childhood. Usually it results in quite chronic uh, stress uh, activation. There might be multiple experiences of trauma. And if they're allowed to or if they go on for long enough, it can develop into a mental health condition. So, for example, I have a diagnosis of complex PTSD. Um, and also as a result of my trauma, I have other mental health diagnoses as well. And I'll just briefly mention that one of them, because I think it's it's an important lived experience to have, um, is uh, what we call major depressive disorder with psychotic features. So that basically means that I have lived experience of episodic hallucinations and delusions, but generally that's around when I'm feeling quite unwell, possibly because of a trigger or something like that. Um, yeah, so those are my lived experiences. Thank you. And just for those who might not be familiar, hallucinations are, you know, smelling, seeing, hearing things or, or voices that mm. aren't there, is that, or that other people can't can't sort of sense? And, That's and right. delusions are around false beliefs, aren't they? Again, sort of beliefs that others don't share or that seem out of touch with reality. That's right, yes. Is that how you you describe those? We, uh, I tend to describe them, or at least the people I talk to tend to describe them as well as uh, being two types of reality. I guess one type of reality is shared reality. So that's the reality that we all live in. And then there's the, um, the reality that the individual has, which mm. isn't shared. Uh, so it, it's a nice way of putting it because I think it makes it clear that whilst it is not uh, hallucinations and delusions are not part of shared reality for the individual in the moment that they're experiencing them, they are a reality purely because they're, it feels real for them. You know, if a hallucination is scary, it's experienced as scary, just as anything in the real world would be experienced as scary. Uh, so, but yeah, basically it's about, you know, can other people see and experience them as well? Not, if not, then maybe it is categorised as a hallucination or delusion. And generally they serve a protective factor as well. So they usually are there for a reason. We might just not understand the reason. But in particular, if there's an experience of trauma, uh, it's the mind's way of figuring out how to protect uh, that person from the unbearable nature of their pain. Mm. 
Mm, absolutely. So well described, Kizzy. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it, I think you, you make a really important point about keeping in mind that it, you know, that's the person's experience and for them it is real and it can be very scary and unnerving and, mm. you know, as a clinician it can, you know, it, it can be a challenge trying to strike that balance between, you know, sort of challenging, you know, the delusion or, or that person's experience but at the same time not wanting to invalidate their experience and mm-hmm. and for them to feel like, um, you know, that, that you, you believe them and that, that you care about what they're saying. Um, yeah, it's not not an easy task, uh, but no, you described that really, really well. Thank you. <clears throat> um, okay. So um, I, I just wanted to, um, just in terms of sharing with us, you said that it was, um, that, you know, you're a bit nervous sharing sort of on, on this podcast, but, you know, um, you've sort of got a bit used to it now. Um, <laughs> it makes me think of what Brene Brown talks about in terms of vulnerability and um, that this is our most accurate measure of courage. And so I just want to say I'm certain that you've done her proud, Kizzy, by um, sharing your uh, being vulnerable with us and, and modelling that because I think it's a really valuable asset that uh, someone can bring to our work. You obviously have strong communication skills. You're talking with us today about some quite in-depth uh, reflective topics and you're also a speech pathologist. How have your own experiences of mental distress and trauma impacted on your ability to communicate? I have had so many experiences. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, in, if I go back to high school, um, the, I think the main impact for me was around social communication. Social communication is such a involves such high level abstract skill, and because I was always in a state of uh, fight, flight, freeze, and collapse, it meant that I was often just not able to access that part. You know, I was so focused on survival. I was very, very hyper vigilant. I was experiencing hallucinations and delusions really unwell, although hiding it very well, because none of the teachers picked up that this was an issue, (laughs) just that I seemed very quiet and shy. Um, Mm. And uh, also I was academically doing quite well. So, uh, yeah, but basically that meant that I was constantly in total confusion in social situations, uh, whether it be one-to-one group, it could be with familiar people, unfamiliar people, adults, peers, in the classroom, on the playground. I was just constantly lost because I just did not have the capacity to think that flexibly and really uh, just be myself intuitively, which I think, you know, you do need to be to really communicate socially. Then there was also just when I was in that freeze kind of a state, I just couldn't comprehend what people were saying to me. Uh, what I'm experiencing now even a little bit of, uh, which is the anxiety, is I can't read when I'm anxious. So when I was going into exams, <laughs> I would be reading the same line again and again, and I would have no idea what I'd read, even though I knew every single word. Um, and so these were very common occurrences or experiences for me. So it would take me and still sometimes does take me much, much longer to complete the same amount of work as the other person, the next person, because I was having to do it or read it again and again and again and then kind of question, have I actually understood this right and then try to make sense of it all? Uh, But then when I was 
feeling better than I could easily. Um, so mental health really did kind of get in the way. Um, and also just thinking of the right words as well. So word finding. Mm, thank you. Okay. Um, I was just going to, this is one, the questions it's not on there, but you, you were sort of talking at the start of that about um, how it wasn't picked up at school, that you were having mm. these difficulties, which makes me think of, you know, this idea of masking and, you know, how much of it's intentional, I don't know, or if it's just something that sort of some people do without realising um, and sort of doing that flying under the radar. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about how clinicians or teachers or families might be able to know if someone is experiencing these difficulties, if it's not obvious? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say that I gave a lot of clues away, not intentionally. Uh, it's more just on reflection that I can see I gave a lot of clues away, but I was uh, intentionally trying to mask. I had a certain level of awareness that uh, my experiences would, were not normal. I, I wasn't fully aware, but I was aware enough that I didn't want the wrong kind of attention. You know, I didn't want people to believe there was something wrong with me because no one really wants to think that way. And when you're a teenager too, the last thing you want is all these adults kind of thinking what's wrong with you, you know, uh, and doing all of those things. Um, I think one aspect would be uh, to understand that uh, being unwell psychologically doesn't always equate to the typical kind of being, you know, not skipping school and like academics being affected and not participating because I was doing very well. I was one of those straight A kind of students ticking all of those boxes um, and participating lots and things too, but just having intense anxiety and just constantly believing things that weren't true. And I would share them because it was only after sharing my delusions and hallucinations that I would realize that people were judging me and reacting in a way that wasn't right. And that was when I would then close my mouth and not share them anymore. So, but the reactions I was getting was maybe it's attention seeking, maybe she's lying, maybe she's joking, um, or is she being serious? Or I'd get just a really really exaggerated reaction because I may have shared suicidal ideations and that would immediately make me switch off. Mm. So I think um, two, two takeaways could have been, one, to try not to overreact. We want to take people seriously. But if we react too strongly, that can also cause the person to retreat back into their shell. Um, mm. But then we've also got to believe. So regardless of how unexpected or how weird or unbelievable what someone says might sound, if we just take it from the, okay, you know, let's think about this a bit, let's be curious and let's explore it a bit more, perhaps we might actually be able to gain a bit more access and not, um, not shut it away. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, it comes back to that idea of feeling safe to share, doesn't it? Um, and and we'll talk a bit more about this soon, but in terms of creating a sort of trauma-informed culture or practice where hopefully um, kids and, and the young people and the, and the individuals you're working with, you've set up the environment so that they feel like they can share with you um, mm. and that they feel safe to do that. Mm. Mm. 
So through your experiences, you've obviously really come to appreciate the connection between communication, mental health and trauma. We know there are high rates of co-occurring mental ill health and communication needs. In your opinion, why might this be the case? Yes. So, I mean, just to share some quick facts, uh, there was a 2006 study in the UK done in an inpatient psychiatric ward that found that 80% of the people there had language needs. That is a very, very high percentage. And yet speech therapists aren't considered a part of the core mental health workforce, which just doesn't seem quite right to me. Um, And there was, just to bring it close to home, a 2018 Australian study where uh, they found that preschool children with persistent language needs and unstable language development patterns were more likely to develop social, emotional and behavioural differences. So looking at it from two perspectives, I guess, one, from one side, we know that there are higher rates of communication needs in populations that are already diagnosed with mental health. But then on the flip side, we also know that there is emerging research to support the fact that communication, speech, language needs themselves can also increase the rates of social, emotional uh, challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and from just a logical perspective, you know, why are there these higher rates of co-occurring uh, mental ill health and communication needs? Well, we can think about it from um, a number of perspectives. One, I would say, is from the perspective of the relation, the, the relational perspective, you know, how we have to use our communication to engage with society and to engage with other people. And we do unfortunately live in a society that isn't quite as accommodating and welcoming and accepting as we would like. Generally, people who are perceived as different or sound different are more likely to be targeted for abuse are much more likely to be isolated and bullied at school, um, are more likely to not be able to participate independently uh, and confidently in the community. This can affect self-esteem. This can affect perception of self. Uh, And if a person is under consistent stress and they're not able to get their needs met because of communication differences, that can be very, very stressful and can lead to mental illness. And these are now, I guess... uh, logical conclusions I'm making. I don't have direct research because we just don't, people just haven't really researched this quite yet. Um, But naturally, we know that trauma forms when you're under chronic stress without enough protective factors. So perhaps speech, language and communication needs can result in trauma. Um, The other aspect would be that when a person experiences, when a child experiences trauma in their early years, we know there's a lot of research to show that it impacts on brain development and brain architecture. The main areas that the research shows are impacted during this brain development period are executive function and self-regulation. And we need executive function and self-regulation if we're going to build on our speech, language and communication skills. So even just thinking about it from this perspective, we can see that communication is definitely going to be impacted and therefore um, it's relevant for all of us, all of us as speech therapists, health professionals, educators, to realise that that mental health and trauma-informed approach really, really does matter. Absolutely. So um, it sort of also really demonstrates the importance of a speech pathologist being involved throughout the lifespan from even, you know, at risk pregnant 
um, mums to, um, you know, infant mental health all the way um, through to aged care uh, because, I mean, communication is about relationships and, and mental health um, is so uh, connected to that, isn't it? I completely agree. I I also think that there aren't enough speech therapists in that really, really early perinatal kind of stage as well because we know that 80% of the brain growth happens before three. That's an incredible amount of brain growth. And when the children learn, uh, young children especially learn through relationships, the brain is an experiential brain, a relational brain, which means it learns through relational experiences. I think I jumbled my words up a bit there. But, uh, and that means that it's actually really important for us to be there from the very beginnings of the mother and baby forming their relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what would you say about some people believing mental health and trauma are niche areas for speech pathologists and concerned about scope of practice? I would say uh, that I really understand why um, speech therapists have come to believe this. Uh, Going back to what I was saying earlier about my experiences at university, uh, I really wasn't taught much about this area at all, other than basically, from what I can recall anyway, incidental counselling. So there was this kind of aspect of, you know, you might need to do a little bit of incidental counselling because sometimes people have depression or anxiety. Um, And then I was learning a little bit, I remember learning a little bit about uh, stuttering and the relationship with social anxiety as well. But that was kind of it that I learnt anyway. I graduated around 2014. (laughs) Um, And uh, And what I've also, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and what I was also reflecting on is the only way for us to really learn about speech, language, voice, you know, communication, dysphagia, and all of those things is to isolate them from the rest of the body, the rest of experience, so we can really break down what these skills are, because that is the only way for us to truly understand what we're working with, what we're looking for, and how we're actually going to build on those skills and and support a person. So so it's important to break it down. But then unfortunately, I mean, real life, in, in real life, these skills don't actually exist in isolation. They exist as part of a whole person. And so therefore, that person's, you know, life, emotions, experiences, hopes and dreams are going to impact on their communication and their communication is going to impact on their life as well. But we don't get to learn that bit at the end of uni. You know, we don't kind of get, we don't get taught how we can then bring these communication skills back into the person before we then go out into the real world. So we kind of end up going out into the real world whilst just having that knowledge of these skills as separate things on their own. Um, And I think that's why I've come across students when I've, you know, supervised on placements who will say to me, you know, I've done all of the evidence-based strategies. You know, I've looked through all the research and I've done this program and I've done this approach and still nothing is working. And when I've gone in and I've had a look at the case, I've seen so many other factors involved, you know, family factors, home, things going on at home, things going on at school, you know, the siblings, the mum's stress, the financial stress. And when I've basically had another chat with them about exploring these things a bit more and really working with the clients a bit more holistically, they've often been able to actually come back to me and say, oh, it worked. (laughs) 
um, because all they really needed to do was bring all those speech language com communication components back into um, the whole person. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that actually um, might have been the main sort of uh, precipitating event, actually. I think I was in a like a, a um, student support group meeting or something at a school once and I was there to talk about the font awareness and the oral language and, you know, we had a site talking about the behaviour and someone else talking about the literacy and I just... Um, remember hearing the psychologist talk and thinking gosh I want in on that like you know I'm just working with this one part of the child and I want to be working with the whole child it's so interesting mm. everything's connected how can I you know be a part of that process um, of supporting the whole child and that's actually what sort of started my um, you know my my journey into into mental health so thank you wow. for identifying that actually i did want to say another thing um so the other question i get asked quite frequently which is also a really understandable question uh is around scope of practice and professional boundaries you know what differentiates us as speech therapists from mental health clinicians uh what differentiates us from social workers uh but, you know, or, or statements which are also really understandable like, but I'm not a counsellor. Uh, and I do want to address this because I think this is going to be an ongoing challenge because this is an emerging kind of area, I guess, and say that the way I've understood what being a mental health slash trauma type speech therapist is that my goals, my end goals do not change. So at the end of the day, what I am wanting to achieve is communication for connection. I mean, that's what I, that's my goal for basically all forms of speech therapy is at the end of the day, we communicate to connect. You know, we don't communicate in order to say things in the most perfect way. You know, I mean, it's nice to be able to, obviously, but really why do we communicate? One is to get our needs met, but two really is to form connections. So that is always the goal. And I never, never, um, never lose sight of that. But what changes is my approach towards achieving that goal, the way I engage the client, the way I communicate with them, my nonverbals, um, how I'm focusing on safety and co-regulation for self-regulation, you know, how I'm working with the team and really ensuring we all have a joint goal, something that we're all working on together and we're all really clear on how we're working together as well. Um, obviously using all the different principles of trauma-informed practice, thinking about the window of tolerance, and also making sure that I'm supporting executive function because, as I said before, uh, when there is early trauma, it can affect executive function. So we've got to make sure that we're making our speech therapy accessible by supporting executive functioning. Yeah. Mm. I think that's it. Great. So what are your thoughts with respect to challenging the status quo when it comes to speech pathology practice in the areas of mental health and trauma? Um, yeah, this is an interesting question. I, I would say, and it does follow on from the conversation that we were just having, uh, in that there are still a lot of misunderstandings um, around what it means to work in the mental health and trauma field 
the the main two being that I've experienced anyway, being that either it's not relevant for speech therapy or that, uh, you know, we're not social workers and counsellors. Um, and I totally understand those. And then I guess there's also the fact that there isn't actually a lot of internal speech therapy research yet in the mental health and trauma areas. There is some research and the research that is out there is fantastic. (laughs) So it's really worth checking out and maybe I'll uh, recommend a few articles um, for this podcast episode. But most of the research uh, that I base my practice on, like talking about the executive function and regulation and all those other things, are from really well-researched areas beyond speech therapy. It's neuroscience, um, psychology, all of those sorts of things that we don't really tap into as much as we could in speech therapy. Uh, And so... One of the things that I've been trying to do to challenge this is have my uh, Instagram account where I basically share my thoughts, I share research, I share my clinical experience, my lived experience, but I've also decided to call myself something that I haven't heard called anywhere else, although, I mean, wonderful if someone else calls themselves this, (laughs) but I call myself a mental health and trauma speech therapist on Instagram (laughs) because I just think, you know, we've got to start somewhere. Every every idea, uh, no matter if it's good or bad, has to start from someone. Um, all research, all really, really well researched programs in speech therapy started with an idea that didn't have evidence behind them. You know, so I'm not saying that we should all go out there now and just do random things that have no evidence behind them, but that when we're working in an area that's so new, we've really just got to use what we can, um, which is me using the evidence outside of speech therapy, and then hopefully we'll be able to build our own body of research within speech therapy as well. Mm. Yeah, lovely. It reminds me of one of my favourite quotes of all time by uh, Indira Gandhi, which is, the power to question is the basis of all human progress. Mm. So um, it's very true in this this case. Mm. So hopefully all our listeners have been convinced by now that practising in a trauma-informed way is important no matter the client. What do speech pathologists need to keep in mind when working with their clients and what does this look like in practice? Those are great questions uh, because at the end of the day, practicality is what matters most. (laughs) So we can talk uh, for days about the reasons why and the theory, but if we don't actually know how to do it, then um, it's not too helpful. So I would say that the number one thing I like to come back to is evidence-based practice. You know, we should, most of us should know now that evidence-based practice is three elements. So we've got our external evidence, which is something that most of us are fairly familiar with, the uh, research, the um, gold standard type research. I mean, Asher actually also talks about internal evidence, which I find quite interesting, which is your own data collection that you do as a clinician as that one element. And then there's also the other two elements being the clinical expertise and then the individual aspects. And I'd like to really emphasize the individualization of therapy uh, as a really crucial part of trauma-informed or mental and mental health informed speech therapy. So um, that's that's the first thing. And so what I'm looking at there is 
history. I'm thinking about, you know, so case history, obviously, medication. I'm thinking about regulation, attachment, connections, support network, uh, the uh, social type, social needs, uh, and really forming a solid base. And then I'm thinking about things like how, if there is potentially early trauma, we don't always know. Um, I like to just, so I basically apply these uh, principles to all people because, as I was saying before, I think communication impairments or differences can be distressing themselves. So basically in thinking about, you know, how trauma may have affected the brain or how attachment may have affected the brain, I'm thinking about executive function. So I'm thinking, am I making speech therapy accessible? Am I using the right kind of language? Am I using visuals? Am I providing reminders? Uh, Am I considering stress responses within speech therapy? So it's not just about when they're coming in, if they're regulated or not, but throughout speech therapy, are they able to remain regulated? Are they able to feel safe? So I'm also thinking about the... uh, brain-based bottom-up type approaches, Uh, thinking about, for example, Dan Siegel's hand model or the window of tolerance or the neurosequential model, which I think is Bruce Perry. Uh, So definitely look those up. I really, really recommend looking into those for anyone who's listening and interested. So I'm always starting with safety and connection, always with everyone. Um, And that actually includes the key stakeholders for the client as well. I'm also starting with safety and connection because there is because there's vicarious trauma because um, because of co-regulation. So I need to be regulated for another person to be regulated, which means that mum needs to be regulated for the client to be regulated, and the teacher needs to be regulated for the client to be regulated. So I'm really thinking about this, yeah, as individually as possible, basically. Um, and then really importantly is my own nonverbal communication, which I did briefly mention. So I'm thinking about uh, the way if I'm smiling, you know, if I may be frowning a bit, if I'm hunched over, how loudly I'm speaking, how quickly or slowly I'm speaking, because when a person has experienced trauma, their threat detection system, which is in the limbic part of the brain, is usually very, very uh Uh, very hyper aware, I guess, of any kind of potential threat. And that can be as simple as a slight little frown. Um, So it's really important that we're remaining aware of these things, that we're continuing to allow the person to feel safe. Um, Yeah. And then considering that for some clients, even just talking about their communication, talking about their goals or what they want to work on can be quite confronting. If their communication differences have been a source of distress, for example, they've been bullied because of the way they speak, they've been um, they've been abused, you know, or they've been really uh, I don't know badly treated in any sort of way because of their communication. Well, to talk about their communication with us, even though they want to work on it, could be really really hard, and that's why we might see clients shutting down or not showing up or being late or not uh, not following through on the work we give them, you know, perhaps we need to consider what's actually going on for them on an emotional and psychological level. And naturally, it's also really helpful to be working closely with a mental health professional like a psychologist so that we can actually be supporting them properly, not on our own, because I basically never work in this area on my own. There's always a mental health professional involved. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kizzy. And that also speaks to the uh, importance of um, well, working in a multidisciplinary team if you can, but if you are working sort of on your own, making sure that you're aware if there are other people, other professionals involved <clears throat> and um, staying in communication so that you're all sort of on the same page, so that your goals are complementary, that you're aware of what else might be going on in this child's life uh, that you need to keep in mind when working with them. I'm really pleased you mentioned about sort of the bottom-up behaviours and the more I've looked into it, particularly Mona Delahook's work around, you know, supporting the nervous system and that, you know, um, <clears throat> that neuroception and that, that safety um, detection, threat detection system. Um, and, you know, most of the, the behaviours that we see that we describe as challenging or concerning would actually be bottom-up behaviours. And so it's really important that we understand what is happening in the brain. Um, and, you know, Bruce Perry and Dan Siegel, as you said, they, they all sort of talk about similar concepts, um, just sort of in slightly different ways. Um, and Mona also yeah, talks a lot about um, the importance of that co-regulation um, and, you know, talks a lot about self-care as well for carers as well as, mm. you know, clinicians to be able to take care of themselves and be aware of their own nervous systems and their own um, sort of um, state so that they can be um, what that child needs from them in those moments. That's right. This is all heavily researched neuroscience. It's There's, you know, so much evidence out there to support these approaches mm. and and like you said, it's about the nervous system uh, when it comes to regulation. So if we want to be able to support a child to de-escalate, as we often call it, if they're in a state of um, fight or flight or whatever it might be, we actually have to first look within. Is our heart racing? Are we sweating? You know, are, is our, has our breathing accelerated? Because if it has, our own nervous system needs regulation first. So only when we've regulated our own nervous system, which is not an easy thing to do, <laughs> um, can we then get down on the child's level, help them feel safe and help them calm down and regulate because co-regulation occurs at the nervous system level. So it's not something you can just talk through. You know, if you tell someone you're safe, it's okay, calm down, but you're literally just like bursting, you know, you just want to get angry, you are not going to be successful most of the time in calming someone else down because unfortunately the nervous system just doesn't work that way. Absolutely. You, you've touched a bit on this already, but tell us about how your speech pathology practice has changed over the years. My speech pathology practice has changed significantly over the years. Um, I naturally like all speech therapists. I came out quite uh, came out of uni quite naive, <laughs> thinking that I could, oh, you know, I know every approach and I just have to apply them and I'll fix everything and it's all good. Um, and what I faced and said was a kind of tough new grad position working with fairly complex clients and, you know, disability, lots of actually trauma and mental health that I just wasn't aware of at the time. Um because uh, I wasn't really in touch with myself either at the time. But really, I just noticed that I was coming across the same situations again and again, which was complex situations with distressed families and just no progress in speech therapy. 
You know, I was trying everything. I was going back through all of my textbooks. I was speaking to all of the supervisors that I could speak to. I was ticking all the right boxes in terms of how we should work clinically and all of those sorts of things. Um, and still, just really not making progress. Or even if we did make progress, they weren't happy and I wasn't happy. You know, because we didn't really feel like there had been an actual change to their life, um, which at the end of the day is nice to be able to do. Um, and no matter who I spoke to, the same response I was getting uh, was, you're doing all the right things. You know, sometimes progress is just really, really slow. And uh, sometimes we just don't see the progress or you just got to keep reminding yourself you are making a difference, even though no one else thinks you are. And I think it was really nice to get that sort of comfort, but it just didn't do it for me. There was just something missing. And I can really understand that these were all well-meaning sort of, you know, uh, encouragements that I was receiving. But I actually ended up taking a two-year break from speech therapy after that because I burnt myself out um, just trying to make a difference and getting nowhere and clients getting really frustrated as well. Um, and then when I came back, I was able to take a different perspective. I had a better understanding of myself and my own lived experiences. And I started working in really, really small charities where I was actually the only speech therapist really small Aboriginal charities where I was able to be exposed to psychologists, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts. And all of a sudden I was like, hang on, this stuff makes sense. You know, I was working closely with them and it was giving me new perspectives on trauma, on ways of working. And then um, I've kind of found myself into I found my way into Umbo and then was able to really build on this knowledge that I was developing through books and supervision, interdisciplinary supervision and trainings that I was doing as well as my lived experience and found myself to where I am today. <laughs> Amazing. So tell us a bit about your business then, Kizzy. Yes. So my business isn't really a money-making business. <laughs> I haven't really figured that part out yet, but uh, basically it's just I'm just so passionate about this area that I want to get the word out there. So I started a website, which I need to spend more time on. I just don't currently have it, but I want my, my aim is to make it kind of like a one-stop resource for all speech therapists to go to um, so that they can be looking up the relevant kinds of information tailored for speech therapists um, and everything that I speak about spoke about today and then I've also got an Instagram account which is aimed at reaching other speech therapists out there in the world um, so that I can get my message across and I can link in with perhaps like-minded people just curious speeches who just want to learn a bit more um, I really try to make my content as evidence-based, research-based as possible, but obviously being a quite a fun Instagram page, I don't heavily emphasize the references and things like that. Um, but if you ever want to look for me, my name is Attuned Speech, A-T-T-U-N-E-D, Speech, on Instagram. And actually, it's also the same on for my website, just adding on a .com.au. Do you have any final thoughts or messages for our listeners today? Um, I guess my final thoughts would be uh, around com self-compassion and self-care. Uh, it's being a speech therapist as hard as it is uh, without, you know, having to try to keep up with all the 
new movements and the new ways of working and we're also time poor and we're all just constantly giving emotionally so if you've listened to this podcast and you've thought oh gosh you know I'm not doing I'm not doing these things or I haven't thought about these things that's okay you know <laughs> that's okay I think we can only do we're all doing the best we can already um, and to just remember that the most important thing uh, with the approaches that I take is self-care You've got to look after yourself first before you can look after anyone else. I love how OTs often talk about how you can't pour from an empty cup. It's so true for speech therapy as well. And it's extra true, <laughs> even more true for trauma-informed and mental health-informed speech therapy because we can expose ourselves to more emotionally distressing situations as well. Um, and then the second is that it is actually quite difficult to be a trauma-informed speech therapist if you're in an organisation that isn't quite trauma-informed. Uh, so to also not be too hard on yourself from that respect because being trauma-informed takes a lot of support from others. Um, and if you don't have that support, then it's not quite possible to do all the time. And so, you know, be kind to yourself in that sense as well. Uh if you ever want to, you know, try to change that, though, you can reach out to me and I can try to help because <laughs> I'm also very passionate about those sorts of things. Um, and really that uh, if there is just one takeaway, I would say it's communication for connection because I think that's personally, I believe that that's at the core of everything we do. It's for meaningful, healthy connection and, um, yeah, and that being mental health and trauma-informed is evidence-based. So, yeah, I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for that, Kizzy. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure and privilege um, to have you. Um, and um, thanks, everyone else, for listening and tuning in. Uh, please refer to the show notes for more information and resources. And tune in again next Wednesday for another Speak Up conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.